Hello, hello, and welcome to season two of the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I am really excited to be back and to be answering your questions. As always, I'll also be sharing a very interesting interview with Dr. Ronaldo Walcott. It seemed very fitting that this would be the first interview for season two, because with COVID-19 vaccines being rolled out around the world, our conversation is so timely and so important. Dr. Walcott asks a very provocative question, is HIV a racist virus? And the overlap between COVID-19 and HIV is astounding. But before we get there, let's talk about Today in Sex. Today I received my first ever dick pic on Instagram. Okay, well, it was actually a dick video to be precise, but still, a dick pic. The sad thing is that I actually expected it to happen sooner. So when people send me videos or audio messages on Instagram or to the podcast email, I'm always a little apprehensive. Before today, I was always pleasantly surprised to have genuine questions or comments for the podcast. So when I got the message from at Airson underscore saying that they had a question and then they sent two videos, I opened up the video and I actually had my recorder ready to go to record their question. The worst part is it's not that I'm shocked because I'm not. The sad thing is, is that I talk about sexual health as part of my career. And so people feel like they can do whatever they want or show you pictures of their penis or videos, heaven forbid, and they just don't think that that's a problem. The sad thing is, even for folks who don't talk about sexual health, a lot of the time folks with vulvas who just happen to share their lives online, yeah, they get unsolicited dick pics. So really, I'm just mad. So, at Erson, named Erson O'Rulli, E-R-S-E-N-O-H-R-U-L-I, on Instagram, you are not who I make this show for. And stop sending dick pics to people. Generally, just stop being an asshole who thinks it's okay to send that to me or to anyone. Just because I talk about sexual health as my career does not give you license to harass me and send a picture of your penis. You've probably done this before too, so I have no problem naming you if it means that you won't be sending dick pics to anyone else. But for you listeners, for those who send in legitimate questions, who actually take the time to reach out to me and to be vulnerable, I see you. I appreciate you. You are why I make this podcast in the first place. And you are why I will take that risk every time I open up a recording because we need more open conversations about sex, and we definitely don't need any more dick pics or Erson or Rulies in the world. Let's get to your calls and to your real questions. This first question I got through Instagram, but just a reminder, the best way to send me a question is to send a voice memo to the Love Doctor Podcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a message over Instagram, preferably a voice message, so I can hear your voice here on the podcast. It's totally anonymous. I am the only one who will see your name, but it's just so much better to hear your voice, right? To hear real people sharing their experiences. But to this person, very legitimate question. They ask, I have a small penis. What can I do? You know, this just seems like super fitting that in the same day that I get like a dick pic, I also get a legitimate question about penis size. 
I'll let you know that questions about penis size are the most common questions that sexual health educators get. And I think a part of why that is, is because so much emphasis is placed on big penises and a lot of porn and making jokes about penis size, they are everywhere. It's no wonder folks are wondering if their penises are normal or the right size or what they can do to change them. But first, your penis is probably a very normal size. I'm basically 99% sure of it. Of course, it varies based on your body type, but typically penises are about the length of a whiteboard marker. They can definitely be wider than that, but realistically, the typical size of an erect penis is 5 inches or 9 centimeters. So not like those 15-inch dongs you see in porn, not even the wooden penises that sex educators use for condom demonstrators, but a whiteboard marker. But I want to recognize that you're probably concerned, caller, that you need to fix or change something about your penis. I'm telling you right now, and for anyone, well, probably everyone, honestly, who needs to hear this, size does not matter. The size of your penis does not dictate how good of a lover you are or how much pleasure you can give and receive. And being concerned about the size of your penis, it actually impacts your sex life way more than the actual size of your penis. Your brain overanalyzing and critiquing yourself on the size of your penis or or being worried or ashamed by it, that's actually creating a lot more problems than the size itself. The hardest thing is that there is so much noise out there about equating penis size with masculinity. And the media and insecure folks, they won't stop making incorrect comments about penis size anytime soon. Also, folks aren't going to stop trying to sell you shit to fix your penis because they are preying on a fear that a lot of folks with penises have. You do not need to get plastic surgery, a penis enlarger, or pills, or by stretching devices to make your penis bigger. And the more you worry about your penis, you will feel less sexual satisfaction, making you feel worse about your penis, and then that will make you have less sexual satisfaction and continue this negative self-talk cycle. So break that thought cycle and start to celebrate your body. I want you to know that your penis is beautiful. It's normal. And no, I don't need to see a photo of it to know that. Also, for a bit of research in here, for folks with vulvas who have sex with folks with penises, penis size, it is not that important, especially in terms of sexual satisfaction. If you know where the clitoris is and you ask the owner of that clitoris how they want it, touched, stroked, licked, whichever, you are set. And just in case you don't believe me, I've linked an article all about how penis size does not matter when it comes to sexual pleasure. The article, Does Penis Size Actually Matter?, is great because it also offers suggestions on different positions to try out. However, disregard how the writer says things like peen or nips. We're mature enough here to say penis and nipples, folks. Okay, let's get to the next question. This question was also sent through Instagram and I think is a really important question to think about, especially in the world right now when we're not able to see each other as readily. So how to respond to sex if you haven't had it slash been in a relationship for three-ish years or so. So as I said, with the pandemic, there are even more people in this situation of not having sex for quite some time. The first thing to keep in mind is that even if you're not having partnered sex, You can still experience pleasure and explore ways that your body responds to different positions, sex toys, erotica, or ethical porn. Also, if you haven't listened to it yet, listen to episode 17 from season 1, where I interview Jasmine Aziz all about sex toys, and she gives some of her top recommendations. I honestly, just go check it out right now. You will learn so much. 
But let's say, as this caller said, you haven't had sex in a while and maybe you're feeling anxious about having sex with a partner or partners again. It is totally normal to, to feel a little rusty or to be worried, but there is a lot you can do to address that. Masturbating and getting acquainted with the pleasure that you can give to yourself, that can be a great way of knowing what works for you and can help you to know what to ask for when you do have partnered sex. This is also where communicating to a potential sexual partner comes in. Yes, it is vulnerable and it can be really scary to start a conversation about sex. I have been there. I know how hard that can be. But opening up that conversation is going to make the sex you do have so much better. You could say something like, I want to take it slow and get to know what turns you on. If you've centered around wanting it to be pleasurable for everyone involved, then you are holding space for them to tell you what they want and for you to reciprocate with telling them what gets you going. And if you haven't had sex or been in a relationship with anyone for a while, that is more than okay. Because really, sex is going to be different with each new partner. What we like, how we like it done, and the context is going to be different. So it's a new sexual experience for everyone involved. If you're thinking about pleasure instead of performance, you're setting yourself up to respond in the moment to what's happening. And you don't need to follow some sort of preordained script of how you should be responding. I also don't want to harp on about masturbating, but seriously, folks, touch yourself more. Even if it's taking a bath or moisturizing your legs, just revel in your body and what makes it feel good. I will also note that context and where our head is at is the most important thing when it comes to sex. If you haven't yet, read Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski. It is such an important book and the key thing I want everyone to come away with is this. We are all the same. We are all different. We are all normal. You are not abnormal for not having sex for a couple of weeks or months or years. You are not abnormal for thinking that if you don't use it, you lose it and other garbage that society and media are telling you. But I am here to tell you that you are normal. And once you know that, you can start focusing on what actually brings you joy and pleasure and forget about trying to respond correctly to sex. Of course, I have linked an article that cites research about how there is no right amount of sex to have and that not having sex for a long time, it shouldn't have any negative side effects. So the article is called, How Does Celibacy Affect Your Health? And yeah, it's a bit clickbaity, but I actually found the information in it to be really helpful and accessible. Of course, both articles that I have mentioned are linked in the episode description. Thank you so much for your questions. And if you do have a question for the podcast, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave me a voice message on Instagram at dr.leatidy. Obviously, I don't want your dick pics, but questions are always welcome and voice memos are the best way to have your voice heard here on the podcast. Do you remember me saying that earlier in the podcast, that I want your voice and not just mine on the podcast? Yeah, this is me asking you, send me your questions, send me your voice memos. I want to share them and folks, people want to hear your questions. They're probably questions that they've had too. And now I am so stoked to share my first interview of the new season. I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. Ronaldo Walcott, where he asks us, is HIV a racist virus? There are some incredible parallels to how COVID-19 is impacting BIPOC communities, and it is especially important to consider in how vaccines are being rolled out right now. All this and more in my conversation with Dr. Walcott, coming at you now.
So my name is Ronaldo Walcott, and I teach at the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. The work that I do is I'm really I work on Black life. I'm interested in the cultural politics of Black life, and I'm interested in in that through the logics of nation, through gender and sexuality, through popular culture. So I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, and that means that I find myself often working around issues or theoretical questions that are pressing on Black people and their lives. So sometimes I'm working on HIV/AIDS. Recently, I've been doing a little bit of short pieces of writing on COVID and questions of race. So that's me. <laughs> well, a big part of of what I try and do here on this podcast is to is to hold space so that I can bring on multiple different experts in different fields so they can tell us about the work that they do. And I'm sure you know as an academic that it can be really great, but it's also it's an extremely privileged space. So a lot of the time, uh, this incredible research doesn't really go outside of academia. I find that quite frustrating. <laughs> So when I when I heard your keynote at the Canadian Sex Research Forum, I I just really knew that I wanted to talk to you further and that I wanted to share your work with the audience who is listening to my work from all walks of life from all over the world and with all different understandings of sexuality. I've had some people ask me, you know, can you answer questions about straight sex? I'm like, um, yeah, we, we, we can talk about that. And then this week was all about sex toys. And what I find so interesting. And when I heard you speak at CSRF, the title of your presentation was Open to Infection, Viruses and Black Sex Life. And you started by asking this question, can a virus be racist? And I'm just wondering, can you can you break that down for me a little bit? I just I found that so fascinating. And you you spoke to it so well. Yeah, I think the thing about viruses and especially viruses like COVID and HIV AIDS is that Ostensibly, they, they can, anyone can be infected by them, anyone can be impacted by them. And so on the surface, they look like they are equal opportunity viruses. And at the biological and cellular level, they are actually equal opportunity viruses. But then there's the other side to the virus, which is what we call the social life of the virus. Mm. So now the, the virus as an organism has infected various kinds of bodies. Right. But then those bodies live in social space. They live in cultural space. They live in economic space. And as the virus begins to take over those bodies, that's when you begin to see the social life of the virus. So you begin to see that some people are able to access health care and some people are not. Mm -hmm. You see that the virus takes some people out of their employment and others not. Um, you see that some people are able to recover from the virus and others not. You see that the virus might find itself concentrated in various communities and others not. And that's the social life of the virus, that once it infects bodies, how that infection plays itself out in the larger community is radically different. So often viruses like HIV and now COVID, the social life of those viruses often manifest as forms of racism. Mm -hmm. And they manifest as forms of racism because what they do is 
they compound the evidence of what these of what these people have been living with already. So they've already been having access, even in a place like Canada where we supposedly have universal health care. You know, people have already been having um, access issues to health care. People who are having access issues to, to housing. People who are working in precarious employment. And when the virus infects their body, all of these things compounded means that they have a very different experience of the virus than someone who has secure housing, a well-paying job, access to a family doctor and the entire healthcare system and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. I mean, obviously, I mean, at the conference, you spoke for an hour and a half, but that was like so concise. And I, I think, you know, as as a white settler and, and a white person here in Canada, it was something to really uh, contend with. And, and you know, a part of, of my training is, is in gender studies and looking at intersectionality and how does our race and our class and our gender play into our lives, as you said, our social lives and our access to healthcare. And I think that's something that a lot of folks kind of forget, right, is that even though, as you said, the virus, it's equal opportunity and on a cellular level of who it's going to infect. It's not like a virus exists in, in a vacuum because then it becomes in the body and bodies are socially constructed. Definitely, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's why I asked that question, what can a virus be racist? You know, when I asked that question, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also speaking back to both the social context within which Black people in particular live and continue to experience HIV and now COVID, but it's also speaking to the history of HIV as an organism, how we come to discover it, how we come to make sense of it, how we come to know it. And of course, that history takes us all the way back to Africa, and it takes us back to some pretty damning stereotypes that circulate globally about Africa. And ultimately, even though the epidemiological history might be proven to be correct, it is the unfolding of it that helps to reproduce particular ideas about Africans. So the idea that 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 the HIV virus is a species jump, it jumps from, from monkeys or chimpanzees likely into humans, and that might have occurred because a human ate, ate chimpanzee meat, says reproduces particular images of Africans that have long existed. But even prior to moving to that kind of epidemiological history, the idea that it was Haitians who first bought the virus to North America and, 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 and therefore Haitians were unhygienic and should have been quarantined. And so you begin to see how a history of anti-Black racism shapes that virus. So we're in 2020, and in many parts of the Western world, the wealthy world, um, people talk about seeing an end to HIV. Um, The antiretrovirals, the cocktail is working really, really well. But in most of the world, even the wealthy parts of the world where Black people live, HIV remains an epidemic. And that's when you begin to ask the question, tongue-in-cheek, but very much located in this history, can a virus be racist? Mm-hmm. 
in your presentation, you had said, nothing of the sort could have emerged from the germ-free West. People who are listening, I have bunny ears around germ-free West. And it just, that... Uh, that way of talking about like bodies now we understand bodies and and viruses and who who is an infected body and who is not and things like like that that history like tracing that history of HIV and not just the virus itself but how it's been constructed was just a, a fascinating journey and really an appalling journey that you took us through in, in your presentation and. I think it in some ways too, because obviously it's HIV as as an STI, but I think it has similar thing to how we think about STIs more generally, you know, as only certain people get STIs and, you know, certain behaviors will, will give you STIs. But even though we know that that's, that's not true, you know, and in terms of like HBV or herpes, I mean, almost everyone has it anyway. But I, I just found that that comparison just so... Uh, so powerful. And the way that you linked it to the way they were talking about COVID-19 now as well is, I mean, in different ways, but, you know, I, I wonder if it'll be a similar thing of when we come, when we create a vaccine, who's going to have access to it? And when are we going to deem this pandemic to be over when actually maybe the only people that it's over for is white, able-bodied bodies, and that's it. And so I don't know if you could speak to that a bit more about how, yeah, we, we think that, you know, HIV, we've, we've cured it. We have all of these, you know, we have PrEP and so many other different things that make it safer for people. But I don't know if you could talk to that idea a little bit further. Yeah, I think those are really a bunch of really interesting probes. And I think part of what we, what we see with these kinds of viruses is, now, of course, given the nature of COVID as a virus, and the way that it, it is so easily widespread, I think that what we will see is that when a vaccine is developed, that there will be an attempt to be as far reaching in the dissemination of it as possible. But I think initially we're gonna see some really interesting, I suspect, let me say, put it this way. I suspect that initially we're gonna see some really interesting different social moves. So right now, lots of the jobs that working class people, people of color do, are considered essential jobs, orderly jobs, nurses' aides jobs, and those kinds of working in long-term care home jobs. So personal care jobs, these kinds of jobs among the elderly. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the normal rhetoric around uh, finding the vaccine is that the most vulnerable will be given the vaccine first. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That would mean the people who are living in long-term care homes, the people who look after them, the people who clean up after them should be given the vaccine first. We might actually suddenly find that the elderly get the vaccine, but not the people who look after them. Mm. And the more that we learn about the context of how COVID is spread, and the context under which working class people are living, which is in, in shared homes with large families and so on, that further increases the likelihood of COVID living in those families longer for, for a prolonged period of time, even as a vaccine is being rolled out. So again, we begin to see how the social life of 
how we practice uh, medicine will impact some and relieve others. And it's, it, it's trying to get us to recognize that there's no neutrality around medicine, that medicine itself is embedded in a set of social practices. Mm -hmm. And part of, part of those social practices, but not all of it, is about which lives are valuable, about which lives are worth going the extra mile to save. And we know this so well in the context of healthcare in Canada, where we have really well-documented cases of indigenous people not being offered health care when they are in distress mm -hmm. and being written off as somehow being drunk, as mm -hmm. being inebriated. There have been a number of cases in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada where indigenous people have appeared in the emergency with other kinds of health care issues and have been refused health care and dismissed as being inebriated. Mm -hmm. So this is the social life within which medicine gets practiced. And I, I would be really surprised if the order of the rollout of a potential vaccine did not replicate what I just said to you. I would be really surprised. That would be something to celebrate and, and to replicate in many other arenas. Mm hmm. You know, I was I was thinking, too, in terms of what bodies receive health care and which which lives do you value uh, is a lot of, you know, different types of birth control methods and things like that. And which bodies have those been experimented on and practiced on? And especially um, like Depo Provera, which is the the birth control shot is has a really awful history in Canada of being used folks with disabilities and in different countries around the world. And so it's this, this always this valuing of certain lives and naming it. And, and most of the time it's, you know, white affluent lives and all of that experimentation and everything happening on other bodies and lives that haven't been socially positioned as valuable. And it's just such a stark reality when you think about healthcare, and especially in Canada, I think we try and uphold this idea of, oh, it's universal healthcare, and oh, we're so much better than the states because we have, everyone has access. And it's just simply not true, because anyone could walk into a hospital, but your access to actual healthcare is completely different on the social context, but also who's giving you that care and what kind of biases or prejudices are they holding in terms of, of helping you in, in this moment of crisis? Yeah, definitely. Just today, the Royal Society of Canada, which had a working group on COVID-19 and racialized Canadians, published a dossier of short essays in the Global Mail Online that takes up exactly this question, how the history of colonization in Canada continues to shape how people are experiencing COVID-19 right now as you and I speak. And of course, I have a colleague at the University of Toronto and her name is Nicole Charles. And she has done um, research that shows how in, in the same kind of true line of how Deprepovera was tested on, on women in the Caribbean and elsewhere around the world, 
um, particularly in the small island where I was born, Deprivera was tested in the 60s and so on, Barbados, that the HPG vaccine has equally been tested on young girls in Barbados and Trinidad. Um, <laughs> so these, these practices and these social relations of medicine continue to shape North-South relationships, continue to shape Black-White relationships, and continue to shape the long ongoing colonial relationships that have informed the Americas and definitely informed Canada. And I think that one of the things that's really important too, in terms of thinking about how lives are valued in the context of epidemics, pandemics, doctor-patient relations and so on is, that for many people of color as well, the encounter with the medical professional, especially in North America where the medical professional at the level of the doctor is often white, is an encounter where they feel that they can't question. Mm. So it's not, it's not simply that people might lack access to healthcare, but even when they access healthcare, that the social relations of the context of the access also brings with it other kinds of histories, hesitations. So also the Black people who know of the historic experiments that have been practiced on Black people will also become suspicious mm -hmm. of healthcare and medicine, while some people will not feel the authority to ask the white doctor to explain more fully or better, why they're getting this treatment vis-a-vis -vis that treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that. Even I, actually, before I had talked to you, I literally got off the phone with my doctor and I was like, okay, I have to go plan to go get a cervical screening and things like that. And, you know, even as a white, highly educated woman, my doctor is an older white man. And I'm like, how am I going to ask him about getting STI testing? And I'm like, ooh, will that be weird? And without any of that history underpinning my experience of going into that that doctor's office. And so I I just I can't I can't even imagine that depth of of rightfully so, of distrusting a system that has done so much harm to your community. And I just, the, something that I, I also wanted to, to ask you about and to talk about was uh, to talk about George Floyd. And you brought that up in your presentation as well. And the, the coroner report for George Floyd said that he had tested positive for COVID-19, but we know that that was not a part of his murder. But what you talked about is the significance in the fact that if it wasn't police brutality, it could have been COVID-19 that killed him. I don't want to misphrase you there, but you, you were talked about that link of, of healthcare and police brutality. And I wonder if you could, could speak to that a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that part of what we've, we're seeing in the, in the U.S. right now is that the, the way in which COVID-19 is decimating African-American communities to the extent that at the over 200,000 dead, at one count I heard that something like 100,000 of those are African-Americans. Oh my God. So the infection rates are really high in African-American communities. And again, this comes back to the fact that people are living under conditions where there are 
multiple people in the household, more than two, more than three, more than four. People are also engaging in forms of employment that leave them susceptible and open to contracting the virus. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, people are subject to forms of gratuitous violence by the police. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in reading up and thinking about George Floyd and then coming across that little tidbit from the coroners around the fact that he had tested positive for um, COVID-19 earlier, it kind of really brought together for me the ways in which the violence of policing, but just the violence of everyday life mm-hmm. can crowd in on one body or can crowd in on a symbolic body, a representative body of a community. And so you think, I mean, you think about the staggering number that maybe 100,000 African-Americans have died from COVID and you put that alongside the spectacular police deaths of individual African-Americans, it is not too, it is not too far-fetched to use the language of genocide, Hmm. to talk about what one particular community within a national formation is experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, And of course, we sit on the edge of our seats in the Canadian context, hoping that there will be no significant outbreaks of COVID on any of the Northern Canadian Indigenous reservations, because we know from the 1918 flu, what that would mean for those communities, that it would be absolutely and totally devastating. Mm -hmm. So again, what we see then is that the experience of an organism, a virus, the impacts of it and the way in which those impacts multiply within the social realm, in some ways, is far more dangerous than the virus itself. Mm. And so it places us in this very interesting place where then we have to ask ourselves, so how can we interrupt that? What should we do to interrupt that? And of course, the things that we need to do to interrupt that are the things that we haven't been doing that made it worse in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering what you what you would suggest. I mean, obviously complex issues, but I find, a, especially in the, the state of the world right now, that it can just be so uh, immobilizing to, to, to not know, like, what to do. But, you know, there, there are some folks, you know, and, and for you and I in, in academia, there are some actions that, that we can take. But even, you know, as individuals, is there anything that you would recommend or something to, to think about? That's, I mean, you can't condense it to one thing, but I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. One is that I think that engaging in forms of mutual aid with communities that bypass the state in moments and crises like this are really important. Mm-hmm. Also think that for people like you and I, as differently positioned as we are, but we also um, find ourselves in a certain kind of realm of, for lack of a better word, privilege, mm-hmm. that it's really important that we listen to what communities say about their own communities and that we trust that communities know what they need. Mm-hmm that we don't have to enter communities with, with the answer. The communities know what they need to make their lives better. And we need to hear them. 
and act on that and act with them on that. I think at the level of the state, especially in the moment of this crisis and especially in a place like Canada, where we have indigenous communities that have been with boiled water advisories for 25 years, that this is a moment when an ethical and responsible government would actually find itself fast forwarding those projects, mm-hmm. right? That in a moment when what they, what they like to call the economy appears to be in shambles, that that kind of infrastructure building would not only give white Canadians and other Canadians jobs, but we would bring needed relief to marginalized and indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. So that's one example to really make the, the bigger point that really being honest about what our priorities are and should be is a significant part of how we begin to address these questions. Of course, the long-term goal is to, to reverse all of the terrible effects of colonialism mm-hmm. that continues to shape these social lives that we are forced to live. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you so much. Oh, I have one more question. And because this podcast is about sex and you had, had just a fabulous line in, in your presentation and you asked, how do black men fuck? And you asked that and I wish, ah, oh, I if it was non-COVID times, I wish I could have been in the room to see everyone's reaction when you asked that question. Because, you know, as, as a white bisexual woman, I don't know. And specifically, we were kind of talking about the experience of, of black queer men. So I, I love that you ask that. And what, what's behind that question? What are you investigating there? Well, what's behind the question of, do we know how black men fuck is two things. One is a critique of sexology research and the fact that, you know, in the popular culture, we think we know a lot of black, about Black men's sexuality, mm-hmm. but we actually know very little. And sexology research has not really been able to seriously grapple with Black men and Black men's sexuality. But the other part of it is that because of the way in which the popular culture has taken up Black men's sexuality, as the buck, mm-hmm. as really, as really hung, all of the kinds of stereotypes that frame black men and black men's sexuality, black men find themselves having to also perform to an expectation mm-hmm. that they themselves might not be individually able to own. So do we know how black men fuck? It's a way of saying, it's a way of asking a question that is supposed to, if you will, shock us into the reality of what we don't know, mm. but what we claim to know about Black men. And it's an attempt to try to pull back something for Black men. To say that, you know, Black men might be interested in forms of tenderness and care and, and forms of sex, sex that, are not, that are non-penetrative, that Black men, that, black, that nobody has really stopped to ask Black men, mm-hmm. what do you think about sex, right? But, but in fact, Black men have to fit a script about sex that is written for them well before they're born. And, and both on the formal research side and on the popular culture side, those scripts are actually really, really tight. Mm-hmm. 
And they're so tight that Black men also come to believe those scripts about themselves. That's how tight those scripts are. And so, you know, the question is a question to jerk people uh, alert to, again, the social context within which we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely, I can't speak to anyone else, but it absolutely did that for me of just thinking, and it's something that I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before, talking about sexual scripts and the stories that are told about certain bodies and certain people behave in certain ways sexually. And we're told that this is the story. And so if that's what we've been told, that's what we enact. And so it, yeah, it was, it was just such a, an evocative question that I, oh, I would have paid any money to see everyone's faces in the room when you (laughs) ask that, because I just think it, I think it would disrupt a lot of narratives and preconceived ideas even in a room of sex researchers i think it yeah it was it was very evocative thank you so much thank you thank you for reminding me of it (laughs) i wrote it down and was like i have to ask him about that (laughs) is there anything else that you do you want to share ronaldo and you it's been so amazing talking to you and just i i knew that i needed to talk to you further thank you thank you I guess the only thing that I would add is that, you know, one of the things that made me put together HIV and COVID in that presentation was very much thinking about, and this 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 isn't it's adding to the question about black men are fucking. It's very much thinking about the way in which HIV has been criminalized and how the most spectacular cases around HIV criminalization, both in Canada and the U.S., have been black men. And and my own worry that if the social life of COVID takes on the same kind of script as HIV, that Black people will find themselves subject to a form of policing again that could have further significant impacts on their lives. And so for me, you know, it's it's going to be really important to see how collectively, not just Black people now, but collectively, we insist on an ethical and a moral, but more more importantly, an ethical response to the rollout of any vaccine that will interrupt the spread of COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to be really important to see whether or not we place, really place the most vulnerable as the, as the first, first demographics to, to access that vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Something for us to, especially to watch when now when, uh, yes. was it Pfizer's like, we have a vaccine. Yeah. You're like, yes. okay, to just it's really see, yeah. yeah, to see what, what happens and how that rolls out. Thank you again. I, Thank you've you. left me with, with so much to, to think about. I just, I know that listeners were really, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks. You too. I'm going to grab this phone in a second. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on season two of The Love Doctor. Next episode, we're talking about polyamory 101 with the incredible Cassandra Heap. If you have questions about polyamory, about opening up your relationship, or you just want to know, what the heck is polyamory all about? Well, send me a voice memo to the Love Doctor Podcast at gmail.com or a voice message to me on Instagram at Dr. Leah Tidy. 
I want to hear your questions and your voice on the podcast, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual. Oh, and happy 2021!